Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef podcast. Today's guest is a marine biologist and postdoctoral researcher all the way from South Africa. His name is Dr. Yanisivan Kisten. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. You can call me Yanis. Yanis is fun. Yanis, you got it. Yes. Um, let's just jump straight into it because I know sometimes I like to have a little bit of an introduction or whatever, but I just want to get straight into the, the nitty gritty. What inspired cool. you to pursue a career in marine biology? Just a couple of things. I think one of the main ones is my, my dad used to work in the Navy here um, in Durban, South Africa. So I spent a lot of my, I suppose, young formative years uh, on the naval base, fishing, sometimes on boats, around the marine environment in general. I spent a lot of time going out to the beach and fishing and stuff. And the other was probably from watching like Sunday documentaries, like National Geographics and stuff like that, which kind of inspired me to pursue that career. Would you say that sort of growing up in the naval... So you lived on a naval base, was that right? Or was it just a father in the no, Navy? No, 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 no. My dad just used to work there, but we lived off the base, yeah. Did it have like a profound impact on you as far as um, when you sort of compare your experiences to other people you know, maybe with different backgrounds and upbringings, like would you say it had a profound impact on you sort of as you were growing up and then later in life? Or was it just, you know, just a different experience? Yeah, I think it did have somewhat of a impact on my my growing up, and yeah, I think it's difficult to kind of avoid because I think a person's like identity gets like wrapped up in in, in it, and they kind of pass that down um, to other members of the family. So like, I had a very, I wouldn't say like super militaristic upbringing, but it was kind of there were influences here and there that I don't think I would have experienced otherwise. Is there anything in particular that comes to mind? Was was it like strict, sort of stricter rules than most are used to or something like that? Yeah, I think, yeah, there was a little bit of strictness early on. And I think, I don't think it was that um, sustainable because it didn't like last very long. Uh, but there were things like we need to keep things tidy and neat and like make our beds in the morning and stuff like that and uh, be able to recite our, our times tables and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And education was really important and put it at the forefront um, to our childhood for me and my siblings. And um, yeah, let's bring it back to biology. So you said that you, you know, growing up, you'd kind of, you know, watch like little documentaries, stuff like that. Like, what would you say, was there a particular moment, do you think, when you were kind of like, okay, I definitely want to pursue this. This is definitely what I'm interested in doing. Or um, maybe like a particular person you met, someone you looked up to, like, what, what were the kind of key things that kind of led you up to the decision? Okay, this is what I want to pursue with my life. Yeah, it kind of, it started out with actually, I think even earlier, I wanted to be a paleontologist. Oh, Because hey. I was watching a lot of like dinosaur documentaries, walking with dinosaurs and stuff like that. And then I remember going to the Natural History Museum here in Durban and being 
totally frightened <laughs> of the of the T-Rex that they had on, on display. Um, and they kind of fell by the wayside for a couple of years. And, and later on, as I was watching like other types of documentaries, there's this one, I can't remember the documentary or who was in it, but it's one scene that a couple of marine biologists were like on a boat, like tagging whales and stuff. And I think that's probably like the earliest memory of me deciding that, oh, that's something I would like to do, like be out on a boat tagging whales. Never got to do that. And I don't really do that kind of research, but uh, it's probably my earliest memory of, of deciding that this is the type of work I want to get into. And um, what, what can you tell us about your research so far? Like how, how long have you been studying it now? How long have you been in the field? Oh. It depends where you wanna where you wanna start. Uh, where, where the, yeah, like what is the starting point? Because I've been like on this path since I was like eight years old. Like I've been wanting to be a marine biologist since then. Uh, but started, I suppose, undergrad in about two thousand seven, mm-hmm. um, and started like postdoc around twenty ten. So it's been. Yeah, it's been a good decade now since I've been a proper, like, academic, kind of, like, not in training and doing, like, research. So I'd say it's about 10 solid years um, since I've, yeah, been around doing stuff. And my work mostly revolves around looking at how environmental changes affect the kind of health of, of animals. So I look at whether changes in how salty the water is affects um, how an animal would survive uh, or thrive or things like temperature changes. If you think of stuff like global warming, um, that sort of thing. I also looked at things like pollution to some degree, like heavy metals in the water and how toxic they can be. So I generally look at how our environmental uh, how environment changes and how that then affects on animal health and uh, physiology. Well, given that you know global warming and and pollution is, I mean, there there are hot button hot button topics, and um, you know there is a considerable amount of work that's being done supposedly to reduce. You know, the environment yeah. supposedly you know yeah. um and you know in some cases that there are some major changes that have sort of happened in a, um over the course of let's say the last 10 or 15 years even little things like just mm. you know better recycling stuff like that but given that you are studying the environment and specifically um marine biology is there any particular things that stand out for you as far as um how the environment is changing and how it's affecting the habitats of um of fish and you know like is there any major shifts that you could sort of share with us that you've noticed well the there's there's a lot it's it's impossible to kind of separate out exactly how how much impact human beings have on the environment and the animals that live there it's kind of some things we're still like even learning about that we didn't quite know we were doing and um, for sure things like you know just fishing and overfishing have a direct impact and then you have things like changes in in temperature um, which can for some cases 
like when it comes to corals which can't move like if they end up in conditions that aren't that great for them to 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 live in they might just die and just go away uh, with other type of animals that can move around or at least they can disperse then there are changes in how like where they are distributed so like when it comes to like south africa we are seeing instances where um, fish are kind of move, moving closer to, to the poles because it's getting too hot for them near the tropics. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's a change of distribution, where it's, we are losing species either due to overfishing or, or, or climate change. Um, and there's unexpected things like just us taking water like from a river for agriculture or or industry and not leaving enough water to go down the river um, in which case some things kind of need that water for their environment that is their environment you know and sometimes things like uh, rivers get closed off in the ocean and in that case some animals cannot have access because some animals uh, particularly fish and some like invertebrates need like to get into an estuary or river for part of their life so if you think about like salmon or like eels and stuff so if they aren't able to to get in then they can't complete their life cycle and their populations begin declining um there's just a, so much things <laughs> like uh, I could sit here and list like for quite a while, like individual types of things. So it's it's a continual learning process, and I you also like can't say that it's all doom and gloom because there are significant things that people are doing, and I wouldn't necessarily say that like it's game over already, um, but although we do get like timelines every year that say you know like it's going to be a couple of years and then it's over it's going to be a couple of years and it's over um which i think is important because you kind of have to like light a fire yeah. um under either people or, or governments to to start doing stuff um on the other end like like evolution has as created like checks and balances within itself to try and keep equilibrium mm. so there are things in nature that help with being more adaptable to certain situations um and we are learning about that type of stuff as it goes but it's it's like it it differs throughout different areas around um the world like if you look at the great barrier reef like global warming is terrible there it just kills a lot of corals but then different coral species had different sensitivities to it. So you get like a change in what type of animals you will, you will see, or they just move around. Um, but obviously we like to, I think as, as people who are into ecology and, and biodiversity in general, we like to, or we want to hold on to as much biodiversity as we can. Uh, but I don't think we're in a place yet where we can start like reversing things. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, but that's not to say that that nothing is being done. I think a lot of people are trying their best. And um, there's always room for improvement. But that doesn't mean we need to discount everything that's been done because we haven't saved the world yet. It's, it's a process. Well, what do you make of the efforts um, that are being made? I mean, let's let's focus it specifically on your field. So within 
marine biology and the sea and the ocean do you what do you make of the efforts that are being put into place to sort of counteract the damage that we're causing and um you know like specifically what how is it in south africa like like Hmm. What, 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 what would be your thoughts on that, like our efforts? Yeah, South Africa has... The, the good side to South Africa is kind of like legislation. Like we have a lot of um, kind of governmental push for doing better things that includes having like marine protected areas, um, which is like, you know, zoning off a lot of like the ocean or rivers just to conserve. Um the kind of problem is that even though on paper, like we have a lot of good stuff written down, the kind of enforcement of that legislation and laws and rules and regulations isn't as ideal as, as it could be. Um, so there's, it's very complicated when it comes to things like, okay, how much rights do we give to people? How much rights do we give to like companies? How much rights do we give to like agriculture and, and industry and um, to the environment itself? Um, so now we do have a push for having like ecosystem rights. So an ecosystem could also have the right to certain things like the right to like a clean habitat or the right to fresh water in the case of estuaries where I work, um, which I think is a, is a really good thing because that's, that's wording that we use as people. Like you say a person has rights, that's understandable. Um, so an ecosystem having rights, I think is, is a good idea. That's a good, good push for things. Um, and yeah, we, I think we, we just passed legislation or at least a promise to, uh, protect a lot more of our coastline now um, and it's up to a, a good percentage so there's definitely stuff going on happening at least on paper um, but it's always like in the field things don't always necessarily translate um, so yeah that's kind of the situation at least from from what I'm seeing um, I think the outlook is is good uh, there just needs to be will in an enforcement. Thanks for sharing. Um, I want to bring it back to just your, I suppose, um, involvement with marine biology and your thoughts and feelings on the field in general. Um, what, what are some of the biggest sort of discoveries that you've come across within your research into marine biology? Well, my, my research isn't like super like groundbreaking anything. Um, unfortunately, research. I don't do, don't do anything in like genetics or anything <laughs> like that where people are making big discoveries. Uh, my research has more to do with the, the life cycles of, of fish. And those can be like economically important fish, like fish that we catch to eat or recreationally. Um, and some of the major things that I do has to do with how important the river flow is and um, kind of what is in like the water that helps fish. And, and part of it is um, kind of these chemical cues that drain from the river into the estuary, out of the sea that attract um, these baby fishes into the, into the estuary to, so that they can live out their life cycle and then go back out to the ocean to, to spawn. Um, so one of the big uh, discoveries that I made that 
sorry, that hasn't been published yet that I'm still working on is how important um, these odors from their their habitat is that get washed out uh, into the ocean and, and attract them. Um, other than that, I do, I have done a lot of work in how um, the effects of like drought has an impact on, on fish. So when there's a drought, it's high temperatures and high evaporation, and that tends to um, evaporate out the water. So the water gets saltier and saltier because the salt gets left behind and then and the water gets like sent out into to the atmosphere. So I've done some work about, um, at least for my test species, about how resilient they are. And it's basically uh, the species that I have, the Cape Stubnose, are kind of like the cockroaches of the, of the estuary, the oceans. They're pretty bulletproof. So it means that they're fairly resilient. So when it comes to, to what communities of fish they're gonna be around, um, that kind of adds to a prediction we can make if things do heat up in the future, what, the, what our you know, fish communities and estuaries are gonna look like. Um, other than that, it's, I think a lot of the work that I do is confirming stuff that, um, is mentioned already in literature that hasn't been like properly tested. So it's because in in science, like po like part of science is being completely novel. Like, so you try and do something completely new. So you go out and have an observation about nature and be like, I think this is happening in nature because of this, uh, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to take some data and I'm going to test it out and I'm going to find the answer. Right. And so, so that's one whole set of science. Um, the other set of science is that like we have to then go and retest that thing and see whether you can actually um, get the same results again, because science has to be retestable. That's why we write out all of these papers with all of our results, so that another scientist can then go and retest to confirm their results. And don't think, it's one of those things that I don't think is... Um, put at the forefront when people learn at least about like the scientific method and, and how like academia and science actually works. Mm -hmm. And it's also one of the things that's difficult to get funding for because you're like, I'm just going to go copy what that guy does. <laughs> Give me money for that. Yeah, it's more difficult. Um, but it is an important part of science because even in science, you can't just take anybody's word for anything. You gotta make sure that you are confirming as much as possible, as much as you need to, whether something is actually happening in nature and we can agree about it. I've had a few academics on the show over the past, well, close to two years now. And uh, I always like to ask them about what the academic community is like what it's like to be an academic because you always get interesting opinions on that and even within what you're talking about there you know pursuing uh funding and stuff is such a massive part of being an academic but what is the academic community like in south africa what have been your experiences good and bad and yeah what can you teach us about that it's a tough one because it's a it's very different depending on like right. the university, the area, how much funding they get. Um, and South Africa is a very diverse country. There's a lot of different kind of people that live here. 
So it's it's tough to say uh, unless you, you want to be more specific and ask more specific things. My general outlook about academia is probably there. It wasn't what I was expected when I decided I want to be a scientist, and I think it has changed. Um, well, what what did you at least? What did you expect when you first came in? I think I expected there to be a lot more like field work and not having to worry too much about like being in an office and doing um, <laughs> doing sciencey things and statistics. And sure, I was like eight years old at the time, so obviously I had misconceptions about science. Um, and also, just some some things in academia, even though like like you're creating new knowledge, right? That means that the tools and stuff that you're also using are kind of like new and up to date, but the entire, sometimes the system of academia, the institution of academia is actually like outdated sometimes. And there are these kind of traditions that are kind of set. Um, if you think about like things like graduations, like everybody's like dressed up like Harry Potter and like getting bumped in the head and like, okay, this is, this is interesting. Um, so there are some thinking that are kind of stuck in in the past and um but some of that is changing now but i don't think academia progresses as much as human culture does mm. um, if you think about like just modern society and how it has changed so quickly even in the past like few years um, if you think like some about something like social media, like only like recently are we getting like science podcasts, like there might've been a, a couple or a few um, that were out for a long time, but like it's only in the past few years that you, scientists are starting podcasts to, to, you know, uh, broaden their reach. And, you know, it's, it's like, like Twitter is a big thing in academia, but Twitter is like an old social media now. Um, but it's only like now starting to like pick up when it comes to, to academics. So I don't know when like academia is going to figure out like Facebook has been there for a while and like Snapchat has come and gone. I don't even know what the academia even noticed. Um, and yeah, so like now we have things like TikTok blowing up and it's it's... Like academia will probably only pick up on it like after TikTok is gone. <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's it's things only happen like in a research cycle. Like it probably takes like two years for a scientist to think of an idea, like try to convince somebody to pay for it and then publish their findings. And then only the scientists would be like, okay, maybe we should try that now. Uh, but it's it's I think it's far too slow for for the way that society the rest of society progresses. I mean, we still have a, a model of of print media, which is you don't even think about that now when it comes to like news. Uh, at least if you're not like under the age of maybe forty. Um, so it's one of those things where just the whole system of how it works tends to make it a bit slow. But also you don't want to be too fast because then you like it's not as thorough as you would like science to be. So it's kind of a I think it's it's a thing now that uh, modern or at least young scientists are trying to figure out when it comes to at least communicating their science to the public because that's really important. Because the way we communicate with each other is just like a, a written like paper. But the way we communicate with um, the public, that has to be, like, yes, you have to go to where the, the public is. 
um, and you have to be able to speak to them in a language that they understand and be able to identify with them. And yeah, so that kind of stuff is is happening and is changing. But sometimes I worry whether it happens fast enough uh, compared to like the academic way of of doing things. I think you raise a really good point, and I think it comes down to a willingness and a commitment to communicating that message. Um, for example, I actually follow someone on TikTok who is training to be a marine biologist, and she's like really, you know, just into it. And and she's done it in a clever way where you know she'll follow trends, she'll do like silly little things, but everything that she does, every video without fail is about marine biology in some shape or form there'll be like a fact in there a tidbit whatever and if you look mm. at all of the comments in there they're all either asking questions or they're other people studying marine biology whatever the case may be um mm. and it's all within the context of this this app which is just essentially for fun but it seems to be that a lot of the people that are making use of this uh, social media tool not, not just people studying but also i've seen a few academics who you know they'll um they'll answer questions or they'll or they'll share you know bits and pieces of what they're looking into and stuff like that mm. so i think it's like comes down to a willingness to share and also taking the time to understand how this format works because as you said like academia yeah. moves, moves slowly and it's the same in every field like um for example when i studied management with marketing at university I was kind of a little bit dumbfounded about how there were all these different methods and theories and working theories on how you could apply these concepts to everyday life. But then they were either things that you just wouldn't use anymore because they've had their time and we've already proven that they're just not effective anymore. Or they would be things that are great on paper, but when you, you know, apply them to a real world situation, they just don't apply. And that's okay. That's just yeah. one, that's one field that's marketing that's a bit different, but it always kind of confused me how there would be all this time and effort and money spent on these things that, you know, as you say, it takes time to fund that research, actually get it to the testing phase and then release it and publish it and whatever. And by the time it's published, it's like, how relevant really is this like, yeah, I don't know. it's outdated already yeah. well yeah and i mean i think i think one good thing is that now at least journals are based online you've got like digit digitized versions and um from what i understand most journals are like a continuous never-ending thing like you'll have like sections of the journal and stuff but it's basically a continuous never-ending thing that you always add to so i think maybe one aspect to this that would would work or maybe might be useful would be if there was somehow like an, like an open door for the public to see uh like research as it's going not, not just not just for the public but also academics to academics if there's like an open door where you can kind of view i suppose in real time what someone is doing and stuff like maybe maybe that might even help research because it's like you know throughout the course of carrying it out you can assist and and you know point people in different directions and such i mean i don't know i'm i don't really know what i'm talking about but in in, in theory it's, it's yeah <laughs> no yeah they are i mean it's going to differ from university to university department to department but there are ways for you to to actually see what certain 
departments or scientists are doing. There are some scientists that do, um, like you said, like do do TikTok or live streaming or depending on like what they what they are doing, like they probably figure out some uh, format that works for them that they can share. Um, so I think it's got to do more with like if a scientist decides that they do, do want to share um, their work, they just need to pick a format that works for the work and works for them and kind of create content. Um, or the other side of that is that scientists are a very busy bunch that have a lot to do. There's a lot of science to do. There's a lot of papers to write. I mean, I've got at least 10 papers I need to, to get written over the next couple of years. There's funding you need to apply for. Like if you're a lecturer and, and stuff or a, prof a professor, you need to do teaching and, and it's, it's a lot. So asking a scientist to then go and communicate their science on top of that um, is a big ask. Um, it kind of makes sense though, because you do want to close the loop, especially like on, on taxpayer money because the people are funding. Um, the work and you want to try and, and give back. So I think the other side of that is for departments and universities or research institutions to hire um, social media managers or marketers, um, especially young people who have a handle on, on, on the newer platforms, hire them to, to help the scientists out to, to create content so that you do have somebody full-time working on getting the message out there um, because scientists probably can't do it unless that's something that they really, really like or want to do. So it's a, it's a twofold thing. Um, and it always comes down to will or funding <laughs> money or whether you want to do it. Well, speaking of creating content and podcasts, which you sort of highlighted earlier, you have your own podcast. It's called, Geekoscopy 101, which obviously, as you can see with your hat there, for those listening, yeah. he's wearing a hat. He's wearing the merch. <laughs> he's got the merch. Yeah, I'm, I'm my, my... Well, it's not really merch because it's just a custom hat I made for myself. But maybe hey, one day we'll get. Maybe one day we'll get too much. Uh, yeah, Geekoscopy 101 is a. I like to say it's a science um, story and. Jeez, uh, I even forgot my own tagline <laughs> and play podcast. <laughs> So I basically look at different ways that people, scientists, science journalists, science communicators can communicate science in interesting and fun ways like podcasting or creating TikToks or just YouTube channels or anything like that so that I can, for one, um, kind of give other scientists and other science communicators ideas about how they can communicate um, their science. But also, on the other hand, for people who are already engaging with that kind of material to kind of um, find new people to like follow. So it's kind of like a signal boost and a kind of like almost like a teaching type of thing, depending on the audience. So it's about how we can kind of blend science story and play together or, or at least have a kind of a almost semi-academic look into where those kind of worlds collide, because that's where I like to play around it. Because uh, as long as I want to be a marine biologist, I've also been a geek and been playing video games and like watching fantasy movies and reading and all of that stuff. So it's kind of the 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 line that's blurred in my life that I kind of want to explore as well. 
So what's the format of the setup? Like, do you have guests just on to talk about different things? Is it just you leading the show and going through things? Like, talk to us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it that. is. It is. It is an interview podcast. So I find people who I find interesting doing interesting things in that space. Um, and yeah, I interview them to see how they went about it, how they got into science, or how they got into podcasting or playing D and D or live streaming or whatever and how they okay. incorporate that into kind of either teaching or science communication and so it's kind of a i suppose biographical interview podcast have different people on every week fantastic uh, let's bring it back to marine biology because i got many questions for you <laughs> um, but i want to start with maybe something a bit closer to your heart why are you so passionate about marine biology? Like, what keeps you motivated and keeps you passionate enough to to keep pursuing this and studying this and, and making this your life? Jeez, that's a, that's a tough one because my my kind of deep passion has been waning over the past um, <laughs> couple of years when I when I discovered science communication and, and the need for it. I think my passion for science communication is kind of now starting to outweigh my passion for doing marine biology but i've always been interested in just learning about new stuff and and just reading about science and like knowing science facts and so since i was a kid so it's one of those things it's it's just part of me and it's difficult to to say like why i'm passionate about it I've just been in it since I was eight years old. It's like a good 20 years now. Um, so like now it's more like it's just part of my life and part of who I am. Um, so yeah, it's difficult to say like what keeps me going um, right now. But I just always love marine biology. I always love science. I always love learning new things. It's, it's always about learning new stuff. Speaking about learning new stuff and learning facts, what are some of your favorite marine biology facts? It's a tough one. It's, it's a tough one to choose. There are just so many, <laughs> so many facts. I think, I don't know if this is my favorite, but there was, I think, recently a, a TikTok trend that is about like what's, what's one fact that you kind of like. It just doesn't make sense when, like, when you hear it, <laughs> it like change your... And the one that keeps coming to, like, to my mind is that, like, sharks have existed on this planet longer than trees have. So we've had sharks for more than trees have ever existed on this planet, and it's it's one of those things that just it it breaks your brain when you think about it. But it is true. I don't know how to react to that. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose I mean, it, it, it brings a bigger question, doesn't it? I mean, I think in many ways, like I remember years ago, someone asked me, like, what, what would you rather, like, what would be more fascinating to you, you know, space or, or the ocean, you know, like, just, like living on, in the ocean or living in space. Mm. And I, I, you know, I gravitated towards space, but at the same time, it was a hard decision because I feel like, there's so much we don't know about the ocean, the sea, you know, life underwater, mm. like, and there's only so far we can actually study as well, obviously, because, you know, there's only so far we can go before um, it's not safe for us to, to be there anymore. And, yeah. 
you know for instance we know there's there's various species that exist that we're probably not even familiar with there's terrifying species that we've managed to capture yeah. that, that <laughs> exist like really far down really deep down yeah right right and i suppose in a way i mean it, surely that must be the first the first life do you know what i mean and i come at this like i have a you know an interest in science but i know nothing you know i'm very peripheral kind of thing but um to me it's always made sense that of all the life that has existed it must have originated in in the sea and and that's like you know yeah and then that's one one hypothesis i think there's there's two big hypothesis of where life could have came from right kind kind of like three because like even on like our planet there's two there's two main ways that we can generate like energy at least biological matter out of nothing and one of them is like photosynthesis and then mm-hmm. you need to be out in, in the sun for that to happen and the other way is like chemosynthesis which usually happens on the ocean floor like what you were talking about with like hydrothermal vents um and that sort of hydrothermal vent environment that's like very like extreme like you find a lot of bacteria that are just resistant to a lot of heat and like pressure and like um just stuff that stuff on land would just be too weak to be able to handle um they just thrive out there and create entire communities um filled with animals um so i don't know if we know for sure um, but it is potential that the chemosynthesis part could have started, and then later on we got the the, the photosynthesis. Um, but there's also like the panspermia theory, which is like life could have originated out in in space, and then like maybe on an asteroid or another world that got destroyed, and then the meteorite hit us. And then we were kind of like impregnated <laughs> with, with with new life. Um, so I think those are the three major ways of how life could have potentially come about. And I don't think I subscribe to any single one. That's I mean, that's not my my field of expertise. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of one of those things with like how like how do we know? <laughs> like how would we know? It's unless we build a time machine and go back in time, which is probably not possible, or at least not with, with today's technology. Um, it's, it's, for me, it's kind of all equal parts, but then I haven't read like the latest scientists on my field, so I don't know, but um, I don't even, for me, I think the kind of extreme um, chemosynthesis, like hydrothermal vents, like the whole primordial soup kind of thing. I lean more towards, but yeah, kind of either way for me. So I've never actually heard this term before. Like I've obviously heard of photosynthesis. I know how that works. It's mm. hammered into my brain, as I'm sure it was many of us from young, young, young yeah. in life. But yeah, what, what can you like dumb it down for us a little bit? What what exactly mm. is chemosynthesis, and how does it work? Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, with, with photosynthesis, like plants um, and like algae and stuff are using like sunlight to turn like um, just like carbon dioxide and oxygen into like molecules that they need, like sugars. 
to in order to like create energy and like survive um, when it comes to the deep in the ocean floor there are these things called hydrothermal vents which are essentially like the top of like mini volcanoes it's spewing out a lot of like chemicals into the environment around it and it's like really hot um, so there are bacteria that have evolved to use what's coming out of those vents to then create energy and then create whatever they need and there's a lot of um, animals that kind of have the symbiotic relationship with those bacteria so that they can then uh, also get the energy that they need um, so if you think about like th these large like worms that you find near these like volcanic places those have a lot of those bacteria in them that are helping them like sift out the the water for the energy that they need and then you have the other animals that then go and feed on those things and then creates a whole ecosystem around it so that's mainly the difference from from because there's no sun anywhere near there it's just all black uh, and all dark so they have to get their energy in a different way and chemosynthesis is the way they do it I love science, man. It's so fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, I, and, and the best thing about it, it's like everything else in life. Um, the more you dig, the more questions you have. You never get answers. You just get more and more questions. Sometimes you get some answers, <laughs> but then even then, like the amazing thing about science is, you know, what you think, you know, in, in the moment, five, 10 years, like 20 years from now, it'll probably be all different. Because, <laughs> And um, speaking of which, actually, I wondered, since you've been in the field now for just over 10 years, what do you make of the technology and the tools we have for um, studying marine biology? Like how have they changed over the course of that time? And um, do, do well, I mean, obviously the technology is going to be better as far as like, it's going to help us make more accurate mm. discoveries and, and, and make um, more informed decisions, but overall, like what, how has it progressed? Well, when it comes to my field, there isn't really a lot that's that's different. I think the basics have remained the same because when it, when it comes to a basic level of what I do as like a ecophysiologist or an ecologist is that you just go out and you catch a bunch of fish and you count them, or you pick them back to the lab and you you look at aspects of of their health. And um, when it comes to like catching fish, like a net still works. It's been working for four centuries <laughs> and it kind of, it kind of still works. Uh, but when we are looking now at how a fish's health is, like probably like a century ago, you would just look at like, like how it's shaped and like whether it has like any like lesions or sores on it or anything like that but now we can get down to an intracellular level and look under a microscope and like look deep down on on damage on a level that you could just can't just can't see with your with your naked eyes mm. or even on a molecular level we can see like whether they're being stressed by releasing certain compounds or having intracellular like damage within their cells um, and things like reactive oxygen species or like if you know like you know you know when it comes to like health you have certain foods that have like uh, like antioxidants 
that that you, that you you eat for. Um, those antioxidants are counteracting reactive oxygen species, which is kind of what is released when an animal is kind of stressed or they're in an, an environment that's damaging, like to their cells. And it's reactive oxygen species are bad because they tend to like damage your DNA, and that could potentially then cause things like cancer, which is something you don't want. Um, so we can measure things like reactive oxygen species now to give you a direct like measure of how stressed an animal is. Um, and we can also measure things like um, how your body is reacting. Like we can measure how much of a protein is being released. So if you look like um, at how stressed you are, if you're hot, your body releases heat shock proteins. And we can go and we can sample like blood or tissue and see how much heat shock proteins are being released. And we can get a measure of that in relation to, to whatever we are measuring for whatever animal. So things have gotten to like a very molecular level now when it comes to looking at what we call biomarkers. And like biomarkers are just things that we're looking for about an individual's like health. So a biomarker could be like anything from like your blood cell count or even how fast you are like breathing or ventilating all the way down to how much damage you're having at your DNA level. Um, so yeah, we've gotten all the way down to like DNA protein level when it comes to these type of things. Um, and now we can replicate DNA. We can, um, we can code DNA. We can figure out like, just we, we can figure out a lot about what is going on in animal or human's body at this point um it's actually wild to think like where we can go from here because we've gotten like all the way down to the fundamental blocks but there's still always a lot more, more work to do um, but when it comes to my work i'm still in that space where um there's no real big tech jumps just yet it's just depending on what you want to test for you kind of have to it's more of like how much money do i have to spend and then you decide like okay what am i going to test because you have to budget for it um, so it's that kind of thing thanks for sharing um what would you say are the biggest challenges associated with being a marine biologist i think a big one maybe you wouldn't kind of guess if you weren't around is the weather because you need to go out into into the field and catch things or at least take measurements and if it's a terrible rainy day it might be more difficult so you or you need to kind of schedule your your sampling around that or, or you could just be hardcore and, and power through which is some people some people have to do um so, so it's general weather, general logistics, uh, being able to pay for whatever you need to do. So it comes down to funding, grants. And then wherever there's people involved, there's politics um, and there's economics. So we have the same kind of problems that any large institution would have um, when it comes to bureaucracy. Uh, funding or anything like that um, it's mostly just people problems <laughs> um, the same kind of problems you would have in any kind of kind of institution I think um, yeah if you if you're dealing with people you have to deal with 
everything that other people have to deal with when it comes to institutions. And then you also have to deal with, with the world and the environment and the animals and sometimes catching them, sometimes keeping them alive is sometimes not easy if you want to do so in a controlled environment. There's a lot of aspects you have to, to, to account for and control for. Um, it's going to depend on what type of scientist you are and what exactly you're doing, but really every day is a problem sometimes when it comes to being being a scientist. If, it, if it's not that, then it's finding, like, like your statistical analysis, getting that to work and learning new techniques because it is, like I said earlier, you're ordering sometimes things that have not been done before and sometimes you have to create like you have to write new pieces of code that no one has done before in order to analyze your data and stuff like that so there's constant challenges i wouldn't be able to tell you the next challenge because i probably don't know it yet so there's gonna be one <laughs> gonna be a new one thanks for sharing um what can you what advice could you give to aspiring marine biologists aspiring marine biologists um, i would say it's probably best to find the question that you want to be answering for the rest of your life wow like is, <laughs> is there a question that it just irks you that you don't know the answer for and you have to know that, I think, is, is the fundamental basis of, of scientists and research, answering questions. So you need for yourself to find that question that you want to be the one to answer and you could be answering for the rest of your life because it's going to drive you to go through, like, the dips and, and the challenges and struggles because it's going to be... It's not a very glamorous life. It's not a, usually not a very high-paying vocation. So you got to be super passionate. And I think one of the ways is to, to find something you really want to answer that only you can answer and that you'll have fun answering. Thank you. Amazing advice. Thank you so much. Um, sort of to tie a bow on the marine biology part of this podcast, I just wanted to ask you, what can marine biology teach us about life in general? Well, it's got the word biology in it, which means life or the study of life. So, um, <laughs> when it comes to to marine biology, like it's like marine biology is one of the actually like one of the more glamorous <laughs> like scientific fields, especially like when you're a kid. It seems like really um, like yeah, it's one of those like rock star kind of professions. <laughs> uh, and I so think a lot of people kind of fall out, out of it. I was one of those people who didn't fall out of it and managed to go all the way through. Um, but what it basically helps teach us is just the importance of how um, this large mass of water and little masses of water across land, just how big, in big ways it affects us. Um, and it's not just there for show. You know, it really affects our everyday lives. And we have to we have to conserve it to some level and not let things run out of hand. Otherwise, um, yeah, it's going to be us just trying to, you know, keep water in our hands while it's like falling through. It's going to be that point where we're not going to be able to control it anymore. So I think it's a, 
you just have to remember like the the ocean and the seas have been always been a tumultuous place for for mankind ever since we've um began exploring and and moving across and i think it's always gonna remain that way even though like we have like big ships and stuff that we can navigate now we have to navigate um just what we have done to it and how the sea is going to react in that way because yeah whatever however lies it's taken thus far it can take a lot more believe you me brilliant stuff thank you so much what's the best advice you've ever received this advice i've ever received wow i don't know that's a difficult one i think yeah for the science one that is difficult because i've always been very independent when it comes to my career uh but i think more on like this the social media content creation side like if you want to get better at something it's probably just best to just start doing it um i think a lot of people um especially people like me try to do kind of as much research and have as, as much theory and like know as much facts as we can about anything before we do it but some things just need practice and doing to get better at and no matter how much you know like in your head like you're just not gonna be able to do it effectively and until you've done it a thousand times and you're not going to do it a thousand times unless you start doing it so just start doing and when it comes to content creation just start creating and you get you get better over time yeah i couldn't agree more with that one thank you um yeah another final question what's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far the biggest life lesson that i've learned so far i think I think for a lot of my life I've been very like one track minded when it comes to to pursuing my goals and and not being um, kind of blocking out like having tunnel vision and blocking out a lot of other stuff um, but I think that sometimes it always comes to 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 bite you in the back so you should always you should always sometimes be open to changing course and thinking about um certain other things that can impact you um down the line you know i've had to educate myself a lot about finances over the past <laughs> few years because i've been i've been too deep into the science and my my pocket has been <laughs> uh, slowly being left behind so it's one of those things that i now have to go and research and play around but so um while having a one track mind is really good for advancing in certain in certain ways i think sometimes you do have to you do have to address some of your your weaknesses um so i think me addressing some of my weaknesses is kind of a, a life lesson that i'm recently learning <laughs> that i need to do and stuff as we draw things to a close for today do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners Final thoughts. I think we've covered a lot of final thought type stuff. Um, I just think, yeah, like we said earlier, just like create. <laughs> um, always keep your mind, um, yeah, like 
I think the idea of diversity needs to extend like within yourself as well. You know, like just like do different things, taste different things. Um, I think it's one of those things that I left in the, in the backseat for a long time that I'm now trying out a lot of, a lot of new stuff. And one of those is my, my podcast, my, my media brand. Um, so yeah, if you can check that out, you can go to kikoskby.com, have a look there. At the, I interview scientists, video game developers, just therapists, like everybody involved in, in science communication or education in, in some kind of way. Uh, yeah, can can check me out and uh, explore, I suppose. Excellent. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for, for being on the show, for being a great guest, sure. uh, for sharing. Thanks it. for having me. Oh, no, the, the pleasure is always mine. It's always um, a lot of fun learning about someone's life and uh, their passions and everything. And, and just, yeah, being able to question you on this field has just been brilliant. So uh, thank you so much. Sure. No worries. And to all the listeners of the Christian Ray podcast, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And as always, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.